Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Chemicals America Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Rather than our usual in-house attorney guests, these episodes feature executives and other business leaders from outside of the legal department discussing some of the biggest issues facing the chemical industry today. We hope longtime listeners appreciate this temporary shift in perspective, and we welcome new listeners, especially those of you in the chemical industry, joining us for this special series. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. I'm a commercial litigator with Womblebond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Uh, we are here recording in uh, beautiful Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and where this is part of our special series on specialty chemicals. Uh, we have two guests uh, for today's podcast. We have Chuck Hinton, who's president of Etox, Ethox Chemicals, uh, and Doug Cochran, who's general manager and vice president of Optima Chemical. Chuck, Doug, thank you guys for being here. Sure. Certainly. Thanks for having us. You know, uh, we're focusing in this podcast series on some of the issues that are facing chemical specialty companies today. I think we've heard at different pieces of the conference, you know, that it's kind of in a dynamic state where there are a number of challenges. One thing I've heard from a number of the podcasts are some of the challenges around supply arrangements and in particular the challenges posed by uh, supply interruptions in China as well as other places. And so I thought I might start with that. Doug, as someone that's on the ground actually trying to manage a chemical plant, what are you seeing in terms of the current situation as it surrounds supply and supply agreements? Yeah, I think uh, from a Chinese and Asian perspective, we're seeing, we're seeing shortages for um, products that we might manufacture. But on the other hand, we're seeing U.S. customers who are being shorted in the market coming to us and saying, hey, can you manufacture this starting material X because we're getting burned out of China or we can't source it anymore out of China. So a lot of companies are complaining about China. We might be in a position where it's actually been beneficial to us, both from a new business opportunities as well as uh, you know some of the tariffs that they put on inbound uh, raw materials out of China make U.S. manufacturing more attractive than it's been in the past. I've got you. So people are looking to Optum as a secondary source when they say, hey, right. we can't get it from China anymore, or it's too unreliable right. to get well, it from China. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. they'll say, look, we're going to try to get it out of China, but at times when we can't, we need somebody in the U.S. that can either be the backup or the second supplier. Gotcha. And do you negotiate? I was interested this morning. I think the figure was that, you know, no one uses contracts more than three years, and a lot of people are doing one- and two-year agreements. Is that, are those the kind of length agreements you see? I just, I just wonder how, how a chemical company can gear up for production and be ready to go and then maybe have the spigot shut off after a year. Seems, yeah, you we, know, seems problematic. Yeah, our strategy things. would be closer to a five-year kind of contract. Okay. Um, if we can right. get a, a customer locked in for five years, then, you know, we can, cr we feel like the project's got a lot more value, obviously, because it's a two-year two -year longer life, and we're okay up front investing a little more, knowing that we've got a five-year return on that contract. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I assume there is a fair amount of investment in the, both equipment, process, manpower, learning, you know, learning a new process, maybe reconfiguring some of your equipment. So. Yeah, it could be all, all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say in today's market space, it's probably more on the human resource constraints. So if we're going to spend the engineering time on a new process or a new project, we'd like to make sure it's going to be around for a while. That makes sense. 
let me turn to you, Chuck. What are you seeing in terms of supply strain? How, how is it affecting your business? It's not hugely affecting it because we made a uh, concerted effort a few years ago to try and get away from China because we had some very bad luck with China. The main supply of phosphorus pentoxide, which we used a lot of at the time, was coming out of China, and uh, China decided to shut down a lot of businesses prior to the Olympics and mm. that sort of thing. And I think we found that it would be beneficial to us if we were to cultivate some other sources. So right now, it's not really affecting us that much. We, we may get a, a positively affected in the way that uh, Doug's speaking about, in that people who realize how much they depend on China might decide that they can't quite purchase what they are from China and they may go to other domestic or you know European or North American people to to get the same products it's awfully hard to resist the the prices from China mm -hmm. of course you know India is almost in the same situation could be in the same situation China is because of their huge population their density of population because when something like coronavirus comes along here you have the city where it started you have two cities that are 30 or 40 miles apart and populations of 11 million and 10 million and it's almost hard to imagine that you know there's that kind of, of density so well we've heard a lot about uh reshoring in the conversations we've had today and then obviously there's been a fair bit of uh reported about reshoring over the last you know five seven ten years in your experience with manufacturing and being on the front lines and um, not just with China, but across the globe, um, how much faith do you put in reshoring? Do you think we're going to see more of that occur? Or do you think that, you know, that's if you're banking on reshoring, it's you're probably making a bad bet. You're talking about business coming back to. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Some clearly will and some will not. Of course, there has to be, first, there has to be manufacturing because many of the products we make go into manufacturing and manufacturing that involves metals cutting or whatever to make machinery. So if you don't have that, then those chemicals are not going to follow. But, you know, there have been a number of cases where we've seen customers go a couple of different places around the world and then come back to the U.S. because while there may be cheap labor somewhere, perhaps the infrastructure is not good enough to support the business. And if you can only run your plant four days a week because there's not enough electricity, then you may go to somewhere else and you may find that the quality of labor is not quite developed enough to do what you want to do. So you may, you may end up coming back. And we've seen that happen. Yeah. And are most of your customers domestic, um, Chuck, or do you have both domestic and overseas? We have, we have both domestic mm -hmm. and international. Right. So the you, majority of it's domestic. We right. probably do 80%. Domestic. And are you still sourcing overseas, just not as much from China? Is that, or have you tried to go <coughs> all onshore sourcing? Yeah, we, we bring some from Europe. We bring some from India. I would say that, you know, the Indian supply probably concerns us most. But an interesting thing has has happened, really, in that 
if you go back 20 years, all of the so-called planet lovers who are concerned about saving the environment, they get up in arms about U.S. production where it is heavily regulated by the EPA and OSHA and everybody else. They will push and push and push until companies just throw up their hands and leave and they'll go to China or they'll go to India where there's much less regulation, if any. And so the net effect on the planet is negative. Right. But yet these so-called environmentalists can only see what's in front of them. Oh, well, there's no smoke in that smokestack now, so the world is a better place. Well, their neighborhood may be a better place, but the world is not a better place. So if you take a whole world perspective on this thing, North America, or U.S. and Canada, would be the very best place for the planet that you could actually make any kind of product because it's the most heavily regulated. But with that comes a cost. Right. No, I think that's, that makes sense. Doug, you brought up something else we've been hearing today as we've done these podcasts, and that is the real shortage in qualified technical labor, people that are actually going to do some of the, both the R&D work uh, in the labs and also run those facilities. Do you have, either of you have thoughts on how to, you know, solve that? I mean, we've been talking about STEM programs for years and years and the need to increase it, but it really seems like we've got a shortage of folks being willing to, you know, come in with the right skills to work at a lot of manufacturing. It's not only in specialty chemicals. I think it's, it's something we're seeing at our manufacturing clients across the board. They just can't get the people they need uh, to pass the mantle. You've got people retiring uh, with a lot of skills that have been in the business a long time, and they don't have someone uh, to hand it off to. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us see a shortage in the technical skills in the marketplace. From a country perspective, we're probably behind in supplying those requirements. If you looked at, you know, the job growth in the U.S., it's probably less about labor, more about technical skills as society advances to more technology, to more automation, to more artificial intelligence. Um, the labor force needs to be higher skilled. You need more, you know, degreed engineers. Um, and it's, it's tough to find them these days. I don't know what the answer is. Um, you can throw money at people, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem because everybody's doing that these days. So. Right, and if everyone throws money, it's still right. you're still not getting only, any more people. Yeah. You're just you're just paying the one you you catch right. more, but right. you're not necessarily yeah. getting uh, more. You know, we've got a plant down in in the middle of Georgia where it's it's tougher to attract folks because it's in a rural setting, and then we've got one in West Virginia, which is you know near the the capital of you know Charleston, West Virginia, and in both cases, it's still hard to find people. So it's not just a urban or a rural discussion. It's just there's a big demand for technical talent. And if you can get it, you need to keep it. And that's really what makes your business go is the amount of talent you can bring on board. Yeah, I think that's true. Chuck, any thoughts on how to, what are you doing to try to solve that talent problem? Any, any ideas? Well, we don't, we don't experience a lot of turnover. We do have some very good people. And of course we have some flexibility that some others don't because we're a family health company and, and we're able to take care of our people and we we realize that our people are our biggest asset so we try to keep people and we have many people getting 20 30 40 year hmm. service awards that's on a engineer level on, a, on an operator level we do a lot of training and we have uh, 
very extensive training program. And, and if you go through the training program and get to be an A-level operator, you know, you're probably going to stay. We give a couple of bonuses every year. We have a Christmas bonus. We give a, a summertime bonus. And uh, very traditional. It's one of those things. It's not part of the package, but we haven't missed it in, in 50 years or so. Hmm. So it, it's, you know, it's a good thing. And that's that, a good, and I no, think, I think that's a good tip for our listeners in terms of building loyalty, right? You get, you have that, and then you're looking to the next bonus. You're like, I don't need to move jobs because... I don't want to miss my Christmas bonus or mm. summer bonuses are new to me. I haven't heard. I haven't heard uh, well, we of those. That, I like that yeah, idea. That's a traditional thing because our fiscal year used to end uh, June 30, and so we would give a bonus then. But now it's it's actually a calendar fiscal year. But the tradition stuck, and people like it. And it's interesting that although you don't guarantee it, people certainly plan to take a summer vacation and use that money to pay for it or whatever. So. We've actually had cases where we had, in a couple of years that just haven't been that good, we said to the people, okay, uh, would you rather have a raise or your bonus? And they'll take the bonus and just, you know, skip the raise for a year just because it's planned. Because they're going on vacation. They're going on vacation. <laughs> want to go to the beach. Yeah. I like it. I'm curious, um, you know, obviously this question of uh, people and the competing in the global marketplace a big aspect of that is, and we've seen with the question of, of reshoring part of it is, well, yeah, 30 years ago when we moved uh, this production offshore, it was because it was cheaper and because we needed 15 people to do this. Now, because of uh, Industry 4.0, the advancement in technology, we're able to have two people do this with the aid of the technology that we're introducing. I'm curious about uh, Industry 4.0 and, and your thoughts on it as far as smart technology, smart factories, AI, and, um, and all of that. Uh, how much of you guys, if any, uh, implemented at your um, facilities and in your production, and how much have you actually looked at and explored? Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not familiar with the 4.0 elements of that, but I can tell you that... Um, from a specialty chemical manufacturing perspective where, you know, you might do something for a few weeks to two or three months and then switch and change. It's hard to, it's hard to standardize or automate a lot of that. I will tell you that where we can, we put in, um, you know, local controls for equipment to help run the processes. Um, we're introducing electronic bat sheets or SOPs, if you will. So, if you looked at what we did down in our Georgia plant last year, I think it was something like 6,000 bat sheets. Oh, wow. And then you pile all that up in the corner. Uh, and, you know, hopefully you don't have to go through it, but sometimes you do. But anyway, if you can get some of the record retention, record keeping automated, whether it's most of it for us would be on the computer, so we're going to that. But um, that's one place where we think we can uh, improve and streamline the process a little bit. But the nature of the business is, you're not in any one thing very long, so you don't necessarily want to you want to automate a process that you know is going to change six weeks later. You need to be fast and flexible from our perspective. That's much the same for our perspective too, because we we make about in a given calendar quarter we make about between two hundred and fifty and three hundred different products. So if we make one batch of something, we clean up, we make another batch, and we do that hmm. in eight reactors 
plus a couple of miscellaneous process tanks. So we're we're running ten different things every day, 365 days, 24 hours. So we generate a whole bunch of batches as well. And Doug's right. If you're making cans, you can stamp out cans and you can make the process go a lot quicker. But when you still have to clean up and rehook up your hoses and all that sort of thing for every time you make a batch, you can't automate that. There's just no way. Now we we do invest a lot of money into automation and controls to make the process go more smoothly. But the problem is you have to get all the stuff in the tank, you know, before the process begins or you're feed it in while the process is ongoing. And that unfortunately takes, you know, I sort of liken it to the fact that it doesn't matter what the bandwidth of your cable is, you still have to have a guy out there burying the cable in the ground who knows how to run the ditch witch because if he cuts your next door neighbor's cable while he's putting yours in, it doesn't do you right. know, you got a problem. You may be okay, but your neighbor's unhappy. And you still have to guy who have a guy who can go out there and dig up the pipe and locate it, dig it up, repair it, whatever. And so, you know, there's the there's always that sort of a low tech thing that goes along with all the high tech. And the higher the tech gets, the higher the low tech gets elevated as well. Mm. So you got a guy who's fixing a fiber optic cable because a contractor uh, in the vicinity of your plant cut into it and he has to be more mm -hmm. um, capable than the guy who repaired the four pair phone line gotcha. of yeah. 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I was ahead, just going to add, I mean, <clears throat> you know, where we can, we try to automate. We've got two plants. So if we've got larger projects, longer runners, we, we just try, we try to throw those projects to a plant that's got a, a DCS, you know, distributive control system that's running the whole process. But the nature of, as Chuck alluded to, the nature of our business is short, fast batches, turn around, clean it out. So automate where you can, but also think about how you do turnarounds. I mean, you, you know, you might spend five days making something and you might spend five days cleaning out and turning around for the next thing. So that's where the real opportunity in our business is, is, you know, you've got a process, but how fast can you get to the next process? Interesting. Yeah, no, that, that's informative to me. I didn't realize the, the number of different types of batches you'd be running. That's, yeah. that's useful to think about and challenging to think about how you're going to manage. Now, when you, when you compare that to the number of uh, raw materials that we use and that Doug uses in his business too, most of those raw materials are made by commodity continuous processes. Uh, our major raw material is ethylene oxide, and that's made by a continuous process. And uh, a typical ethylene oxide plant would make, you know, up to a billion pounds a year of ethylene oxide, and it's just spitting out EO all the time. Oh. And so they have to do something with it. They have to load it in a rail car or convert it to a derivative. But that's the difference between the people who supply us and what we do. And often it's difficult to make the people who supply us understand, mm -hmm. you know, the nature of our business that, no, we don't know exactly how much we're going to use in a given month because sometimes it may have 10% of this raw material. Sometimes it may have 60% of this raw material. So it goes up and down. Right. Interesting. I wanted to ask a question about social media. We were talking a little bit before we started, uh, Chuck, about 
the evils of social media. Our regular podcast listeners will know we've done a couple podcasts talking about how to use social media to promote your business. I think, Chuck, you, you were talking more about how sometimes something can get in social media negatively, and we see that frequently in the chemical space. You hear about a leak, a contamination, an illness, and it can you know spread very rapidly and do a lot of damage. Can you expand on that a little bit more, but, you know, in terms of the conversation we had about the, the potential downside of social media and how quickly uh, news can spread? Well, I, the, I think that the biggest thing that concerns me is that oftentimes the declarations or the hysterics that you see going on in social media are very inaccurate from a scientific standpoint. And they're being made by people who essentially are not qualified to make those decisions or those proclamations. It's, it's just a very disturbing thing to see how situations become distorted through social media. And there's the idea that if you saw it on Twitter or Facebook or something, that it's somehow true because it's there in, in print. And that's very unfortunate, but I think it's a byproduct of our society that, and a bad piece of information gets out, it travels around the world or around the country in seconds, and now it's the gospel. Right. So I think that's something that we all have to be careful of. And I, I know when I talk to my grandchildren, I say, just because it's on that phone, it doesn't mean that it's true. It just means that someone wrote it. And they think it's true or else maybe they don't think it's true. Maybe they're trying to somehow use that information to their advantage. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means in social media, but as, uh, as some of us age out of this industry and the, the new people come into it, it's going to be more of a prevalent part of how business is done. I will say we've spent some time and effort around making sure we manage social media to the point where we have actually hired someone that that's what they do for us. Okay. So you've got a person that's their yeah, job. Yeah, we're not experts. So they, you know, they manage web traffic. They manage the social media sites. They decide mm. what we need to post. They understand how it's all linked together, how it drives people to your, your web page, that kind of thing. But gotcha. I think it's very important. I don't think that we've seen any negative information about it from our side, but it is something that uh, you have to manage on a daily basis. So interestingly enough, I think there's a positive aspect to social media as well because I was at a meeting a number of years ago and we had a speaker who was discussing the topic of hazard communications. And he asked how many people had a Twitter account and there were 20, 25 of us in the room and I think two people held up their hand and he says, mm -hmm. well, shame on the rest of you because you should all have a Twitter account. And we said, why? And he said, because if you have the misfortune of having an accident at your plant, the first thing someone reporting is going to do is see if you have a Twitter account. And if you do have one and you're able to get your message out to the public, then you're controlling the narrative and you get the message out about what did happen instead of having the, you know, news helicopter flying around your plant saying, oh, it could be this, it could be that, and all of the speculation and hysteria that goes on as you see when there's an accident and 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 a lot of times too the media the so-called professional media tends to go to some of the least qualified people you know they they go to the guy who's sitting two blocks down at the gas station who says you know give, gives his account of what happened right. and, and of course it's what he saw from the 
windshield of his car and that was not the complete picture in fact. So it can be positive that you can use the social media to get out your message. And uh, I think that uh, it can be used to excess as well as uh, President Donald Trump tends to use it to excess a little bit. You know, it's good that he can use it to get his message out because it may be the only way he's getting his message out. But on the other hand, he could be a little bit more clever about the way he handles that, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. So I'm sure the NSA is going to screen this, and they'll probably be around to see me now. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I do think, too, for listeners, I mean, your own Twitter account certainly a resource for big problems. I know our law firm has a crisis team that handles, you know, we're looking at legal exposure, but also media exposure, public relations, working with PR folks. And I think, you know, if you've got that big incident, getting professional help to help on the PR side, but also the legal side, you know, is a good idea. Because mm -hmm. often these result in legal exposures, whether it's environmental issues or personal injury or contractual. So, yeah. you know, I think getting professionals involved to assess that team is is useful too. We had we did recently bring in for training. We brought in a communications firm to do some training with us. And interestingly enough, the gentleman that was training us, and by us, I mean what we did was designate five spokespeople at the company. And so the first guys are the what we call the chief techs, and they would be otherwise known as a shift supervisor. So they're the guy on the ground. If something happens, they're going to be the ones who are going to face whoever comes out there until one of the others can get there. And we, you know, we're all in town, but somebody may be traveling or whatever, so we have plenty of choices to go to. But <clears throat> it was very interesting because he had previously run a newsroom himself, Ooh. and he really knew how to ask the questions, and he tried to. He tried to trip us up, and he tried to antagonize us and make us angry and to where we would, you know, scream at the other person and tell them how silly they were. Right. <laughs> but it, it, was a, it was a good program. Uh, so I would highly recommend everybody getting some professional help, and I'm sure you'd like for them to get it from Wobble Bond. Right. Well, it doesn't have to be us, something. I think. I think, but I do think that's a good lesson yeah. in terms of bringing people in to help you develop a communication plan or emergency response type plan that includes different elements. So that's good advice. I'm glad that's helpful. Yeah, I think role playing some of those disaster scenarios are really helpful mm -hmm. to do it because you don't want to be making it up on the fly. You know, you need a plan, checklist, whatever. So if we have an incident, how are we going to manage it? I think that's good advice. Well, the one, the one thing that's a little distressing too is that even though most of the communications experts will tell you that you want to be honest. You want to say, yes, this is what happened. Uh, be honest about it. Don't try to cover things up. But the fact that you're speaking from the standpoint of a being a chemical manufacturer, uh, some people almost interpret that as, well, we can't believe you because you're in the chemical business. Right. You know. Right. You're covering, your, covering, covering yourself. You're covering yourself. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I so we'll give you, you know, we don't know the answer to that question. We'll give you the full information. When we find it out is not taken for what it is, that's taken as, oh, you're covering up. You know? Gotcha. We do have a live audience here today. So before we wrap up, let me see if there's any questions from our many, any, any of our members of the, of the audience for, for either Chuck or Doug. So I have a question. 
talk about employment, how do we get more people in the United States involved in manufacturing and technology, but how does social media play a role in that? Because being in the chemical industry has a negative connotation in the United States, as does a lot of the manufacturing environments. So what do you do with social media to try to bring people in or cast a more positive light on chemistry? Well, that's a tough one, and I, and I don't know that uh, there's anything specific that we're doing. Um, we do really appreciate the fact that more people, particularly more young women, are becoming involved in the STEM uh, studies. I, I'm very proud of my granddaughter who just graduated from Virginia Tech with a degree in engineering. She's the first STEM girl in my family. But, you know, it is very difficult to, to find people, encourage people. I think we Outreach maybe to the school systems is a good thing because if you can go out to a class of middle school or high school kids and you know change the colors of solutions or whatever and just try and tell them what you do, show them some magic tricks. You know, we've sent people out many times to the school system to try mm -hmm. and just to get people interested because when I was a little, I had a chemistry set, and uh, of course that would be absolute disaster. Now you couldn't you couldn't do that because of you know, many reasons, I guess. And uh, that that's sort of what got me interested in chemistry, you know, as I right. make my little things that would stink up the house or whatever. But you I know that too. <laughs> I remember yeah, my chemistry. The set. Gilbert Gilbert yeah. chemistry set. Yeah. 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 I don't know, Doug. You Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's a good question. It's a tough question. You know, the STEM program, we support that at the local high school level, but as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of negative connotation associated with the chemical industry. So if you're a middle school kid or a high school kid and, or even a college kid and you hear the negative press around chemicals, you hear the negative press around big corporations shutting, you know, laying people off or, or cutting their workforce. So, you know, why would you jump into that? So, but there are a lot of good opportunities and certainly you can make a above average living in the space we're in. So, I don't know. It's a great question. It probably needs to be uh, flushed out a little further, but I do agree social media is probably the way to get and attract the younger folks. You know, part, part, of the, part of the negative connotation, I think, is that chemical is interpreted by many people as bad chemical, hazardous chemical, right. Right. toxic chemical. And in fact, if you can touch it, feel it, breathe it, or eat it, it's a chemical. Right. And I think people don't People don't think about what's a chemical. You know, you look around you and what's a chemical and what if you did away with all of the nasty chemical business, where would you be? You wouldn't have, right. you know, we wouldn't have a chair to sit on or a table to sit at or anything. So I think it's very important that uh, I always get tickled at these, uh, these little videos where people go out and they're getting a petition signed to ban dihydrogen oxide because everyone who comes <laughs> in contact with it dies. <laughs> and it's amazing how people will do, oh, I'll sign that petition, and they'll just sign right up, you know. Well, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's, but the data is clear. Everyone who's ever taken a drink of dihydrogen oxide dies. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, particularly if it's heavy water. No, <laughs> no but that's, no, that's true. You, you might I, really. <laughs> I think, Frank, I mean, I, I think Chuck's point is an excellent one, and it, the language, right? I guess to me, like I have a positive association with the word chemistry. I think of my chemistry kit or chemistry class or 
taking chemistry, but chemicals, for whatever reason, for most people, there's a more negative association with the word chemicals, like you're talking about, you know, a contaminant or an unnatural thing, or I don't want chemicals in my food, or, you know, no chemical. That's, it's just kind of been, for whatever reason, linguistic or otherwise, right, it's mm -hmm. kind of gotten this reputation. So I think it's a great question because it is a, a it that, creates this bias against I don't want to work for a chemical company mm -hmm. and I don't want to work for a manufacturing company for all the reasons, you know, they go out of business and those jobs go away. And so you get this perception that I think if they actually met and, you know, the employees working um, at your companies, there'd be a very different feeling of, hey, I'm making something that makes the world a better place and, you know, does important stuff to improve industry and make things work better, cleaner, more efficiently. I mean, there's a lot of positives that obviously you know well from being in the industry, but it is. It's a PR problem. For, I think for this chemicals. business about you, you're okay with chemistry, but chemicals have a bad connotation. I think that's a, that's a conditioning thing that has happened over the years through the media or whatever, that chemicals are bad. And I always, <clears throat> I always get tickled with, especially some of the younger generation who uh, say, well, I have this product here that I use in the bath and it's like an all-in-one product of you know, shampoo, body wash or whatever, and it's chemical free. <laughs> well, yeah. but there's something in the bottle. Mm -hmm. But they, they think of chemical right. free, which just proves the point that chemical means bad chemical. Yes. And that, that's a bad substitution to make. I agree. That's a great, thank you for that question. I do think it's a real, it is an image and publicity problem that probably makes a lot of people, they don't grow up thinking I wanna work for a chemical company because they've got this stigma around it that really probably shouldn't be there. People knew what those, what those companies really did. Great. Any other questions before we wrap up? All right, if not, I think we are about out of time. But uh, thank you very much, Chuck Doug. I appreciate you joining us uh, for this podcast. I do want to remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, womblebonddickinson.com, or go to iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments about this episode, please share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm also always interested in topics uh, for future episodes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been In-House Roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.